0: It's Tuesday, July 23rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Hundreds of thousands of Puerto Ricans filled the street to protest and demand the resignation of Governor Ricardo Roseo. In a scandal called Ricky Leaks, over 800 pages of online chats were released where Roseo and others in his inner circle made sexist and homophobic comments and even mocked the victims of Hurricane Maria. Ursula Pirano, reporter for Axios, joins us for the political crisis in Puerto Rico. Next, we are currently building the Giant Magellan, the world's largest telescope. It is being constructed under the football stadium at the University of Arizona. It's made from special glass shipped from Japan and will have a resolution 10 times greater than the Hubble Space Telescope. Jared Mayles, astronomer at the University of Arizona, joins us to talk about the Giant Magellan and what we hope to discover once it's up and running. Finally, if Florida's in trouble, then we might all be. The state is feeling the squeeze of environmental change on its beaches, farms, wetlands, and cities, and can serve as a preview of what our climate change future may look like. Corinne Iozio, executive editor at Popular Science, joins us for their special report, The Florida Problem. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: I've apologized uh, for that. I'm. I'm... Uh, making amends for for, for all of uh, the comments that I've made on the on the chats, uh, that is one thing. There's another effort uh, that needs to move on forward, which is uh, the battling of corruption. Joining
0: us now is Ursula Pirano, reporter for Axios. Thanks for joining us, Ursula.
1: Yeah, happy to be here.
0: There are thousands and thousands of Puerto Ricans filling the streets of San Juan that were demanding the resignation of Governor Ricardo Roseo The thing that really set this latest wave of protests off were leaked text messages from the governor and members of his cabinet and inner circle. They were making all sorts of crazy remarks, sexist, homophobic comments, mocking victims of Hurricane Maria, which totally devastated the island. Tell us a little bit about what's going on.
1: Puerto Rico's been struggling in general with corruption and economic recovery following Hurricane Maria, and had recently had a scandal with contract mishandling in the administration. But what has been that final straw are these text messages that are just egregious in nature and that the country is backlashing against, so they've taken to the streets. They're calling for his resignation, but as it stands, he is currently only agreeing to not run for re-election, and that's just not satisfying the people of Puerto Rico. are turning out in the hundreds of thousands it is affecting the economy Uh, cnn just wrote a story this afternoon about how cruise ships are declining to port there you know it is growing and there is no sign of it wrapping up anytime soon
0: so about 10 days ago there was this leak of 889 pages of online chats between roseo and and his uh, close aides and and as i said other members of his cabinet What were in these text messages that have offended so many people there in Puerto Rico?
1: It was mainly a mix of sexist and homophobic comments. So the homophobic ones were towards uh, Puerto Rican singer Ricky Martin making comments on his sexuality that were pretty offensive. And the sexist end of the comments were towards San Juan's mayor Carmen Cruz. And they were one of his administration officials. joking that he was going to shoot her or that he wanted to shoot her and the governor responding that that would be a grand favor to him. And so these are just very alarming to the Puerto Rican people. They're very concerned and they feel it is resignation worthy.
0: Beyond that, with regards to Hurricane Maria, they were talking about the overcrowding of the morgues following the hurricane. And he said, now that we're on the subject, don't we have some cadavers to feed our crows? So, I mean, right off the bat, there was uh, so many people lost in the aftermath of the hurricane, not even due to the hurricane itself, but due to what happened after there was no power, lack of services for the people that really needed it. And, and, you know, these are the things that they're joking at. You, you mentioned uh, Ricky Martin, he was there as part of the protest also. So everybody's turning out for all of this. What's been the reaction from the governor now? I I saw an interview that he did with Shepard Smith on Fox news and uh, Shepard Smith is just letting him have it. Why aren't you leaving? Everybody is calling for you to leave. The people are calling for you to leave. And he's just defiant. He doesn't want to go.
1: So his justification is he says that these text messages are an issue of politics and he is focused on policy, that he still believes he could have a beneficial effect on the issues that are affecting Puerto Rico and that he has apologized. He has characterized them as mistakes. But Shep Smith pointed out that, you know, mistakes usually refer to things that you did accidentally, one-offs, you know, and this was 800 plus pages of text messages. It is hard to characterize it as an innocent mistake when it was so repetitive. And so he's arguing that he's going to stick around, but it's certainly questionable how that's going to play out.
0: Tell us a little bit about the corruption that's been going on there, because as I said, they've been going through a lot of different things. There's been persistent corruption there, mismanagement by the island's two main political parties. They're in a big debt crisis. The economy is not doing well. They're still recovering from Maria. What is this corruption that's been going on? Because there's various cabinet members that have left because of that also.
1: There's been a lot of mishandling of over 15 million in contracts that was recently brought forward, leading to two FBI arrests. That had already been in the limelight just days before this leak finally broke in full. And so that's brought a lot of people's attention towards the government, but in general, Puerto Rico has been struggling before Hurricane Maria, but simply has not been able to come back. People argue there's been mismanagement with Hurricane Maria funding that has not been properly allocated. Of course, we had the cover-ups of the amount of deaths that occurred in Hurricane Maria that were even more detailed through some of these text messages. You know, People there are hurting, like you said earlier. It is, people have been without power. They lost loved ones. A region that really needed the support of their governor and they feel like they've lost it during this extremely fragile time for their economy for their
0: livelihoods these protests have been going on for many days now they're planning more protests throughout in the next coming days and the pressure is on for the governor to do something you can only only apologize so much but if everybody's calling for you to leave just seems like that's gonna gonna happen pretty soon the president has also weighed in on it he's not happy with what's going on there various uh, politicians on the U.S. side have been calling for for him to resign. It'll just be a matter of time to see what exactly will happen.
1: There's momentum behind it, and it's certainly building here stateside, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out uh, back in Puerto Rico itself.
0: Ursula Pirano, reporter for Axios, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Oscar.
2: So all of this elaborate structure that we have to build is really just to receive a small number of photons of light that are coming to us from distant space, hit this small little patch where we've set up these mirrors and allow us to address these mysteries uh, that we don't yet understand about our universe.
0: Joining us now is Jared Mayles, astronomer at the University of Arizona with the Steward Observatory. Thanks for joining us, Jared. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. We're building the world's largest telescope right now. It's called the Giant Magellan. Jared, you are part of this team that is going to be using this telescope once it is all complete, looking for other planets and and a bunch of cool stuff, and we'll get into that in just a moment. But tell us a little bit about what it takes to construct the world's largest telescope. It's being built under the football stadium right now at the University of Arizona, And it's got so many cool things that are involved with this. There's this glass that we're importing from Japan. You have to melt it down and then grind it and and polish it to like such uh, precise specifications. Tell us a little bit about this.
2: The uh, important thing when you're trying to study the universe using a telescope is that you have to have as perfect a telescope as you possibly can. You know, any imperfections in the glass... Anything that causes the light to not come to a perfect focus basically makes it harder, and so we do everything we can to make these things perfect. And so, this process by which this these mirrors are made at uh, here at the U of University of Arizona is really demanding and really exacting, and it's all set up to create these nearly perfect mirrors. And so, from the beginning, this there's all this engineering that goes into making this giant rotating oven. It starts out as. Uh, sort of fist sized chunks of glass and 20 tons of it gets loaded into this oven that then heats up to 2000 degrees and rotates at 10 RPM while the glass is melting and all designed to make this smooth, perfectly uniform structure that is in the mirror with a parabolic surface. That's what the spinning does. And then it takes three months for that to cool down so that we can then start working with it. And then once that process is done, then it's, then we start polishing and the polishing is the really important part. That's where we get this perfect optical surface. And the goal for these, the, the surface of these mirrors is that the accuracy of the mirror surface, when we're done polishing should be 20 nanometers. So an analogy that we like to use is if imagine that you took that primary mirror and blew it up so that it was as big as the continental United States. If you blew it up that big, you would have about a one inch bump on the surface from that twenty nanometers. So wow. that's kind of a, that's a way to grasp how how smooth those mirrors have to be when we're done with them.
0: These mirrors, you said there's twenty tons of glass that gets put in there. Once it's all said and done and smoothed out and grinded away, it leaves about a seventeen ton mirror. And they say that the giant Magellan's resolution is going to be ten times greater than NASA's gold standard, which is the Hubble Space Telescope. As you've been mentioning, it's just great feats of engineering and the whole process that it takes to do all of this stuff. This is going to end up in Chile in a 22-story observatory there. Once we have it all said and done, it's, you know, and it's working properly. You're one of the astronomers that is hoping to use this. What are you going to be doing with this?
2: So my long-range goal for this observatory is to use it to study extrasolar planets, so planets orbiting other stars. And the specific thing that I want to learn about those planets is whether or not they have life on them. And so the GMT, using this fantastic resolution and its giant mirror, which lets us capture more light, is going to be our, our first good chance to actually look at other planets and try to study their atmospheres and try to figure out whether there's evidence for life going on on the surfaces of those planets.
0: How quickly do you expect to get uh, some results? Because when we're looking through these telescopes and out into deep space, we're looking at light years. So we're looking at things that happened tens, billions of years ago, millions of years ago, et cetera. How quickly do you get results?
2: Well, so, you know, what you said is true, that when we look at something that's one light year away, the light has been traveling for a year before it gets to us. And... We take that into account when we try to understand things like the evolution of the universe and everything. But when when we're studying a star that's relatively nearby, um, we just take the light as it comes and just uh, interpret that. And don't worry too much about the fact that it's 10 or 20 or 30 years old by the time we get it. For instance, the first star we're going to look at is probably the one called Proxima Centauri, which is about four light years away. And I would suspect that it probably takes us uh, six months to a year before we really have enough data that we could interpret and start making conclusions about the planet that orbits that star.
0: This is going to be ready in the mid-2020s. I think 2023 is when it'll start, uh, you know, the first use of it will happen. And and this whole effort, you know, there's a lot of people involved in this. I think in one of the articles I saw, you mentioned we're going to be fighting tooth and nail for time to spend with the telescope and, and using it. Since you guys are helping to build it there at the University of Arizona, do you guys get first crack at this thing?
2: Well, we're one of many that gets first crack at it. So the way these things work is there's several universities, both in the U.S. and around the world, that are, in, that are contributing both money and effort to this project. And we, and we all will get a share. And so it's sort of like if you contribute 10% of the telescope, you get 10% of the telescope time. And then here at the University of Arizona, we ha- we'll have our own competition for that 10% of the time. There's a lot of people really excited to use it, so I think the competition is going to be stiff.
0: I mean, it just sounds really amazing, the construction behind all of this. The resolution is 10 times greater than the Hubble Space Telescope, which was, I think, launched in the 90s. Um, so this is really the a new telescope for a new era, and it'll be really interesting to see what comes of all of this. Jared Males, astronomer at the University of Arizona with the Stewart Observatory. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: You're welcome. Thanks for having
3: me. Florida, because of its really unique and diverse ecology, is an interesting kind of case study, like a bellwether for all of the things that can impact us because of
0: climate change. Joining us now is Corinne Iozio, executive editor at Popular Science. Thanks for joining us, Corinne. Happy to be here. Right now, in Popular Science, you guys have a special report going on called the Florida Problem. As you write in the in the little headline for this, if Florida is in trouble, then so are we all. And it really takes a look at our climate change future. Uh, Florida right now is struggling with crops. They have salty aquifers. There's invading wildlife. And they're really feeling the squeeze of environmental change all over the place, on its beaches, their farms, wetlands, in the city even.
3: So this suite of stories, this package of stories, is part of our summer issue of the magazine that's all about sustainability. And we realized as we started to look at what was going on on the national level, but also globally, that Florida, because of its really unique and diverse ecology, is an interesting kind of case study, like a bellwether for all of the things that can impact us because of climate change.
0: And one of the stories that you have is how Florida is one of the fastest growing states in the nation. The population has grown in the last decade. And what happens because of that, it pushes developers into other areas where you might not normally be building buildings for for people. What's going on there?
3: Well, There is a community that has suffered some pretty intense devastation because of this sprawl, and particularly what we looked at is the population of Florida panthers, which are an endangered species. So in the southwestern quadrant of the state, an area called Collier County, which the biggest city in that area is Tampa and St. Petersburg, we ended up in a situation where there was these patchwork developments that were making it so that the panther, which has a very broad range in terms of its breeding grounds and hunting grounds, was getting pinched by these suburban developments. We're seeing things like panther crossings snaking between like, a Walmart parking lot and wow. a shopping mall. Like, That's not a safe environment for the drivers. It's also not a safe environment for the panthers.
0: And in this part of Florida where panthers are being squeezed out, another part of Florida... Other animals are moving in, specifically Burmese pythons are invading all over the place, making even their way up into the central part of the state.
3: Yeah, so these Burmese pythons, we're talking tens of thousands of pounds of Burmese python has been captured and pulled out of the state by local wildlife officials. And a lot of these snakes are the offspring of escaped or released exotic pets. So this is truly a completely man-made invasive problem. And they are very much just going after the native wildlife. You know, small mammals like possums in the Everglades are going after birds.
0: Yeah, one of the snakes that they opened up had 24 species of mammals and 36 types of birds. One of the things that was interesting uh, from the story, from this collection of stories that you guys had, I mean, in Florida, they're coming off of something that's called uh, the greening.
3: Yeah, and there's nothing more iconically Florida, right, than that image of just a bright, vivid, delicious orange. And the orange crops over the last couple of years, but in the 2017 to 2018 season especially, really got hit with a triple whammy. So there's this greening disease that you alluded to, which basically kind of makes the plants really stressed out. Their vascular systems don't do a very good job of delivering nutrients from the soil to the fruit. So you end up with crummy fruit, and then really more frequent and severe storms start coming in and knocking healthy and unhealthy fruit right off of the orange trees. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have these really hard, hard, sudden freezes. You know, you freeze the cells, the water cells or the water molecules inside an orange and then they thaw again and the whole thing just gets busted out and gross.
0: One of the last things is that the the 21 million residents of Florida get the vast majority of their drinking water from two aquifers there in the state and there's an increased salinity in this water. That is also another big problem. So these are all effects of climate change. These are all effects of, uh, as we said, you know, continuing development to make more space for more people that we have going on in the state there. Uh, What are we looking for as far as solutions to some of this stuff?
3: I mean, it's just, it's a really tough problem and it's a seriously moving target. Like you mentioned the aquifers specifically, Um, the researchers that we talked to are working directly with the water management bureaus in the Southern parts of the state that are really having trouble getting enough fresh water out of the Biscayne aquifer, which is the one that sits beneath the Everglades. And they're just trying to work with them to try to figure out what can we do? How can we preserve what little fresh water we still have? You know, they're building traps to hold on to excess rainwater, or they're thinking about possibly rebuilding some mangroves, some like land masses in the Everglades to perhaps they hope be able to kind of soak up some more of that salinity to provide enough fresh drinking water for the southern part of the state.
0: Corinne Iozio, Executive Editor at Popular Science, thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. That's it for today. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Brooke Peterson and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.